0: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Charles L. Hughes for his 2015 University of North Carolina Press published work entitled Country Soul: Making Music and Making Race in the American South. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hughes. How are you doing today? I'm all
1: right, Adam. How are you
0: doing? I am doing outstanding. You know, I'm I'm you know, I think we're both, we talked about this online, we're both uh we're a little under the weather, but we're gonna we're gonna fight through it today.
1: That's right. That's right. Such a pleasure to be
0: here. Uh, absolutely. And um, and so before we get into uh, country soul and um, kind of like the genesis story of it, can you tell us a bit about yourself and um, how you got to become a historian and uh, also kind of a little bit on on you know, the the, the the story of maybe how you started to like country music and also soul uh, genres as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I, um, my kind of academic background, I was, you know, I was always a really good history student uh, when I was even, you know, like middle school and high school. But I was one of those people who was kind of convinced that, oh, you know, I'm gonna go to law school or do that kind of stuff. But it was pretty quickly once I was an undergraduate. I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison uh, for both my undergraduate and my graduate work. And I was, you know, a pretty young student when I took a introduction to African-American history course with a historian named Timothy Tyson, who is now at Duke. Yeah. And uh, but I mean, and it was about two or three weeks into that class that I Realized okay, not only do I want to major in uh, Afro-American studies at Wisconsin, but I also think I want to kind of do this as a career. Uh, so it was pretty clear from there going forward uh, that I wanted to be a historian. Um, and so, you know, I – I got my undergraduate and master's degree in Afro-American studies at Wisconsin and then uh, went over to the Ph.D. in history. And I think that, you know, as I thought about what I wanted to study as a historian and what I wanted to do, you know, it was clear that I was really interested in racial politics in the 20th century, particularly uh, thinking about um, questions of African-American freedom and resistance. Uh, But also I was very interested in popular culture and popular music. Uh, so I kind of tried to find a way to bridge those interests, and that you know those those kinds of writing I wanted to do and thinking I wanted to do, and so it was not hard when I was looking for these these two separate strains, one of which being thinking about African American politics, particularly in the South, uh, and then thinking about popular music the story of country music and soul music was a pretty clear point of connection between those two. And I'd been, you know, I'd been a a fan of both genres from the time I was pretty young. You know, my house was filled with, you know, playing lots of different kinds of music and I had been exposed to those very young and I had uh, become very familiar with them and really liked both of them. And what really got me interested in this was originally what I wanted to look at was the fact that, uh, in Southern soul music in the 60s and 70s, which was thought of at the time as being kind of the, the blackest, you know, quote, blackest popular music uh, of its time, uh, that there were so many white musicians involved with this. I got really interested in the fact that in places like Memphis and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, there were. All of these white songwriters, all of these white session musicians, all of these white producers working with African-Americans to make this music that was, you know, quote unquote, very, very black. I thought that was kind of an interesting point of thinking about not only race and music, but also this is the 1960s and 70s, just post Jim Crow South. What a great way to think about what integration meant and that kind of thing. So that was my initial entry point in. Uh, But as I went along, obviously, I realized the story was a lot more complicated than I had initially thought. Um, But another thing, which is I, you know, I only realized, I think, after the book was released, as a matter of fact, was I also realized that one of the things that was really important for me was when I was still in high school, I saw a performance by by two of those white musicians who had been so involved in soul music, Uh, a singer songwriter named Dan Penn uh, and his collaborator, a keyboard player and songwriter named uh, Spooner Oldham. They were these two, you know very kind of prototypical middle-aged Southern white men. I think Dan Penn was wearing overalls when I saw him perform, you know, and yet instead, Yeah, totally, right? And yet and still, they were involved with writing and playing on and producing all of these great deep soul songs, Dark End of the Street, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, It Tears Me Up, and they performed them in a way that was really soulful, right? And so I'm kind of a kid at that point. I don't have a language really to understand my question about it, but it was sort of a disjunction for me, right? Like, wait a minute, white people, particularly from that part of the country, aren't supposed to sound like that, right? So I was kind of thinking about that. Um, and that was really influential, too, kind of outside of my you know classic, you know, where I went to school, what I did, and that kind of thing. So those are sort of the official path was thinking about the unification or the 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 shared uh, way to to put together my interests in thinking about racial politics and thinking about popular music. Uh, but also I realized that it spoke to a kind of very deep interest I had in thinking about these particular sounds. For me as
0: well, um, I think about as an 18th and uh, 19th century historian, obviously I don't have living people to examine and and to talk to. Um, So methodologically, um, were you able to use uh, uh, any oral histories uh, personally done or from different archives as you were coming together with this project?
1: Yeah, uh, I was both. I did I did oral histories with musicians, including Dan Penn, uh, who I just mentioned, uh, and several others. And I also was able to access a couple of really important archives. The most important being an archive uh, at the at the Smithsonian in Washington, the National Museum of American History. Uh, their archives uh, include this really amazing set of interviews that was done in the '90s. Uh, with a bunch of musicians, most of whom were from Memphis, but as you discover pretty quickly when you're looking at this, Memphis is deeply connected to other places like Nashville and Muscle Shoals. Uh, and uh, historians Pete Daniel and Charles McGovern, uh, along with a local Memphis music historian uh, named David Less, uh, and a couple of other folks uh, uh, tangentially, did this a really remarkable set of oral histories, uh, with these musicians. So that became really, really crucial. But the interviews that I was able to do, I think was also, they were also very important, not just in helping me figure out what the story actually was, uh, but also helping to kind of challenge my own assumptions about what I thought I was going to find and what I thought this story meant. So yeah, used oral histories that had already been done. And also I was, I was able to do some of my own.
0: That That is, that's great because I, like I said, I was thinking about this before. I was like, man, 'Cause I'm actually doing a oral history project um with the National Park Service, um, where I'm actually gonna be uh interviewing um black over the next three years, uh three summers really, interviewing um African American community members in um Maryville, um, Tennessee, and then also in Waynesville, North Carolina and that in the Appalachian Mountains. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was like as someone who's not necessarily trained uh formally in the academic setting um with oral histories because really well all my people are dead uh but <laughs> as to, to be quite honest with you so um it's it's always great for me to to learn from those whose projects are um more contemporary and so learning about the different archives and also for the people for our listeners as well that means that they now know um uh, of different archives of uh, of of uh of oral histories that they can that they maybe can use for their personal projects or or just to to learn more uh, so we definitely appreciate you for that and so um getting di- diving um knee deep into the book like uh my my uh zach brown band love goes uh <laughs> uh that was definitely intended um getting into that um so Culminating in the 1950s and the 1960s, when I, when I was growing up, my grandmother is from uh, rural, North, uh, rural South Carolina, and I grew up learning from her, like, hey, country music is what we listen to on the radio. And, you know, that was a connection that I made to your texts, especially early on when you talked about the various people early on in your book who are African-American, who listen to the radio. And country music was something that they learned about um and so uh early on in your book, that was something that was great. So would you be able to talk to us about really how those early chapters showed kind of like the the nature of country music and the and the nature of soul music and kind of set that uh set that scene for us
1: absolutely yeah i you know one of the things when speaking of doing oral histories, one of the things that i that I learned very quickly. Uh, When I started out, whenever I would talk with a a black musician or someone who was African-American who was involved with this, whenever I started, I thought like, oh, my first question was going to be, you know, do you like country music? And then I realized very quickly I didn't need to ask that question because the answer was always yes. And the answer was always connected to for that generation, uh, hearing it so much on the radio and being so exposed to it through through those those means. So, I mean, hearing that about your grandmother is very, very reminiscent of, I think, a very important kind of broader story. You know, the from its very beginning, country music was a hybrid sound, right? Kind of blending Appalachian traditions, blending, you know, English and Irish uh, musical traditions with – Uh, traditions that were African American. But from the very beginning, country music also had this very kind of troubled uh, or complicated racial identity, right? It was a music that in one way was very integrated in the terms of the sound and also in terms of the audience base because African Americans loved country music. Uh, But also it was from very early on, and particularly by the time we get to the 50s and 60s, it gets coded as being a expression of whiteness right or it gets associated with with white folks um so one of the things i found doing this project was that there's this very interesting paradox between music that is kind of reflecting this very uh integrated or cross-racial musical uh, identity, while also very early on being set up not just by the music industry, but also by kind of folks who were thinking about the music and culture or even politicians as being reflective of racial separation. So the reason why the story that I was trying to tell was so interesting is that in Memphis and Nashville and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, three cities that I, I term the country's Soul triangle You have musicians, uh, integrated groups of musicians, white and black, producing country music and soul music at the same moment, often the exact same people working in the exact same spaces. And the reason they're able to do this is because they're really talented musicians who listened to all different kinds of music when they were growing up and when they were learning to be professional musicians. They played all different types of music uh, in clubs or uh, in recording studios, etc. So at the one hand, they're making, uh, they're, they're demonstrating how linked these musical styles are, while on the other hand their music is becoming so reflective of racial change and also racial separation in the United States, country music and soul music become commonly understood metaphors for racial difference. And particularly by the time we get to the late sixties, they are thought of as being symbols of a divided America, right? So I was really interested in thinking about that and to kind of come back to the, the question of black folks listening to country music. One of the things that I think is really important about that is that Black folks love country music, right? Because, you know... People love music, and you know, music is when music's good, it's good, right? But one of the things that I think is really interesting about the ubiquity of African Americans being exposed to country music growing up, you will often hear that story about, oh, you know, this was the first kind of music I heard on the radio. Uh, country music was what we heard everywhere. Country music was what was available at the record store. You know, all that kind of stuff. On the one hand, that does demonstrate the kind of fallacy of racial boundaries when it comes to music, right? Like this is supposedly white music, but here are black folks loving it, and all ultimately contributing to it and helping to transform it through their own work. That's unquestionably true. But the other side of that, of course, is that the reason why so many African Americans, particularly of your grandmother's generation, the reason why country music was the first thing they heard, the reason why country music was the first thing that a lot of black folks were exposed to is because styles like rhythm and blues or blues or gospel or jazz didn't have the opportunity to get on the radio, right? Or would be in a very limited space. So it also, even as country music's interracial quality and interracial audience, even as that demonstrates the way that music breaks down racial uh, boundaries, it also demonstrates the way that music can kind of affirm them, right? Uh, And more broadly, in the book, I try to map out the way that those two things exist simultaneously—that both country music and soul music demonstrate the way that music breaks down our ideas of of racial separation—and did that historically, but also at the same time, the way that music was used as a method of reaffirming those racial boundaries and of even within integrated recording studios racial ideology and racial politics were st- when i think about what you what you
0: just mentioned i what came to mind also for me was how um like you said the metaphor of soul like oh wow he you know like this white man he or this white woman they're they're singing with so much soul which is, like you said, you might as well just go all the way there and say, if you close your eyes, you might just think that they're black in some kind of way, shape, or form. And even, um, even not even just in the way that they sound uh, vocally, but also musically. And so I think that spoke to me as a contemporary uh, country music fan who also sees... In this interesting moment, I'm, I, you might have seen what just happened with uh, Winton Marsalis with his comments saying that uh, I thought that when initially when I heard him, um, he was speaking about contemporary hip hop and rap, but he was talking about all the way back to 1985. So I'm like, that's indicting the entirety of the genre of hip hop. And 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 for the listeners who might not be hip to what we we're speaking about, um, Winton Marsalis talked about how uh, uh, the Confeder- no, no, no. How hip-hop and rap music is more destructive than any Robert E. Lee statue. That's a loose quote. And so, so to me, that brings up really how, uh, to me anyway, country music and hip-hop have really a similar nature in the sense that they both have very, um, how do you say, uh, uh, purists. You have people who are purists, right? People say that we need to go back, and obviously it's tangential. But uh, you need to have Hank. You know, we need to go back to the to the to the Hank Williams uh, uh, senior and junior days, right? We need to go back to you know outlaw country, which you talk about in the book. Oh, actually, we go. We're talking about going back to a lot of the fifties and the sixties and the seventies kind of country music, because a lot of this "quote unquote" bro country with Luke Bryan, Jason Aldean, and Um, Eric Church and those kind of guys are kind of like, nah, that's not the real thing. But also with hip hop, let's go back to the 1980s, the, the glory days, the golden age, because all this other stuff is not real. And I think that even there's a twinge of what you talk about in the book in the sense that what is really country and what is really soul? Because really, when you start to answer those questions... As a culture, as a nation, that's when we start to to really see more and learn more about ourselves, even as well. And I learned that a lot through your book, so I appreciate that.
1: I think it's a really interesting thing with with country and hip hop. There's this interesting similarity that you can see. I mean, obviously, Winton Marsalis is kind of doing his own thing, right? And obviously, doesn't like hip hop very much. And frankly, I don't think knows very much about hip hop, or at least certainly knows a lot less than he thinks he does. But even like a lot of hip hop heads, hip hop musicians and hip hop fans will kind of share this sort of sense of the loss of the real that you often hear a lot of country people talking about like, oh, the old days were better. They were less commercial. They were more connected to reality. They were more, uh, they were more politically effective, right? It's so interesting to me how these two genres of music, that often get positioned as being so different for, for good reason, uh, nonetheless kind of have this sort of looking backward thing where they're trying to kind of go back to a past that never really existed. Um, but one of the things I think is really interesting also about what you said, and I try to talk about this in the book, it's a theme that I, I hit a few different times in a few different moments, uh, thinking even back into the 50s with rock and roll and then going up to the to the, the way that country music uh, brought disco in in the late 70s with Urban Cowboy and Dolly Parton and had this huge moment of success, of crossover success. One of the things that I think is so interesting, and it happens over and over again and it's still happening, is that these debates, when they flare up about – Is the music real? Is the music still, does it matter? These questions about two genres coming together. Is bro country bringing in hip hop? Is that a bad thing? Should we go back to the way country music used to sound? Uh, Should we go back to this mythical place that used to be, supposedly? It's always intimately connected to broader debates about what's going on in racial politics in the United States, right? The way that we think about segregation, the way that we think about, Um, racial politics, the way we think about black assertions, the way we think about white political reaction to those assertions. The music becomes not just a a metaphor, to use the phrase that you use very aptly, uh, to think about those, but also a mechanism, right? We don't do well in this country talking openly about race. Uh, Ironically, I think we've gotten uh, a lot more comfortable talking openly about race in the last few years, maybe because it's completely... Uh, unavoidable in our modern political context where we have, you know, an openly (laughs) hostile president uh, kind of employing white nationalist rhetoric. Ironically, that's made it easier in some way to convince people that race still matters. But one of the ways we've always talked about race is through music. Our debates about music, about whether or not the music is real or authentic or destructive or helpful, thinking about whether or not musical genres are going in the right or wrong directions We've always talked about race through those things. You know, earlier you said the thing about how when white singers uh, sing with soul, right, that that's really just a code for saying they sound black. One of the things I think is so interesting, and I I mentioned this very, very briefly in the book, but and I'm totally serious that. One of the best ways to understand the kind of landscape of thinking about race or thinking about identity more broadly uh, in the U.S. right now is to watch American Idol or The Voice or one of those kind of music competition shows. Because the same things happen every season. You will have the white singer who sings with soul, right? You will have a black singer who sings country music and the judges will be like mystified, like, oh, my God, a black person who can sing country music. Um, you know, and, and it's really interesting how music be- music becomes this form of currency that we have to think about race, um, even in moments when we all want to pretend that race doesn't matter. Unification through music—that's
0: what we all want. But at, but, but but you know, we we and and I think the the dynamics that you talk about in your book and how the producers, the songwriters, the the, the The people who are really making the music happen who are not the public faces of them um and I think this your 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 country soul triangle in Muscle Shoals and memphis and um in in nashville are is so is so great to think about because it made me think about like Stax records it made me think about you know uh 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 elvis hayes and 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 even you know how in the 1980s, you saw a lot of hip hop uh, uh, groups and artists even sampling stacks, right? and 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 so I think that um, learning about the racial politics and and would you be able to speak a bit more about the 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 inside baseball, as they'll say, uh, of the of the production with all the different – because there there's so many – and y'all, when you read this book, you realize there are a lot of different uh, um, re, re, uh, recording companies uh, that, that that are involved in this book. So keep an eye out for all of those acronyms. because You will definitely need them.
1: Um, well, you know, the production side of things was what I was really interested in and thinking about how do musicians work together, right? Or how do people in the music business work together? And although I wanted to talk about audience reception, because the two things can't be separated, uh, the people behind the scenes were the people I was really interested in. Like I said earlier, in many ways, my first interest in this was trying to, to think about the white musicians who had been involved making soul music. Um, but as I got into the story, and as I sort of realized that it was far more complex than I originally thought... I realized that the involvement of African-American musicians in these integrated scenes was as much or even more important, uh, in part because despite the fact that they've gotten far less attention than the white folks who made soul music, the black folks who were involved in country music, not just Charlie Pride or, or folks who were uh, black country stars, but African-American songwriters or African-American musicians who either played on country records or influenced the style, uh, their experiences were really, really fascinating. But I also ultimately realized that it was far more complex than I originally thought because the, the African-American musicians who are involved in places like Stax Records, places like Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals and all the other acronyms, right, and all the other record companies – Uh, I think that their experiences, while celebrated in one way, one of the things I wanted to do with this book is really try to present a more, I think, a richer and more complicated view. Oftentimes, these black musicians are presented as being symbols of interracial progress and white redemption, right? The way the story has tended to be told is that, Oh, at places like Stax and Fame, there were integrated scenes where white musicians kind of cast off the legacy of white supremacy of the South, and they worked with black musicians, and it was a an interracial utopia. You even hear people say, oh, race didn't matter, or we didn't think about it. But when you look at the experiences of black musicians, while it's unquestionably true that there was incredible work together and and under very difficult circumstances between black and white... Uh, There were also moments of racial conflict. There were African-American complaints and broader concerns about racial politics in these studios. And ultimately, Black musicians did not benefit as significantly as their white counterparts did from the successes of the studios that they created. Uh, So I wanted to kind of honor the work of both Black and white musicians who we're thinking about race all the time and we're working through the sonic politics of, of music, but also the like tangible politics of a, of a, of, of a, world in which race mattered significantly in every respect, uh, both in a sense of thinking about their successes and also sort of their failures. So the musicians are working together in really fascinating ways, but also I think complicating, a story that you continue to hear that is told about stacks and told about fame and told about these other places that supposedly this were, this was a place where the races were able to come together and not think about race. That's just completely nonsense. Uh, And I think that by focusing on the musicians, you can see the incredible success that they had, uh, but also maybe a little bit of the complexity of interracial work uh, in this really tumultuous time and place.
0: Yeah, and that interracialism that you 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 speak of is is definitely one of the most identifiable uh, areas of your book um, because it it speaks to a sense that a lot I won't say all of us, but a sense that a lot of us in the nation have, where you know you 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 do want to see good interracial stories, and 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 your book definitely provides them, and the country soul. Uh, genres definitely provided them um, in their large heyday within the 1960s, but they're not happening in a vacuum. They're happening within the greater civil rights struggle. And, you know, whether in Memphis, whether in Alabama, whether in Nashville, Tennessee, as these recordings are, are, are being conducted, there's still Black and white people in the United States of America during this time. And so, right. So, as the civil rights movement and the Black Power uh, uh, eras really reached their 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 heights, how did that affect the interracialism and also how music is being produced, and also how some of the recording studios shifted in a way as you go from a Kennedy White House to a Johnson White House to then a Nixon White House?
1: No, I, I mean it. It it was really significant. I mean, obviously. As you say, right? I mean, one of the things about the um, one of the things about the musicians is that even though many of them aren't necessarily thinking about kind of trying to actively speak into political conversations, and there are very few of them who are sort of activists in the way we would traditionally think of that, they're constantly thinking about these cultural changes because they want to make music that most effectively represents and that can be most effectively sold, right, to an audience that – is not just involved in these civil rights and Black power changes, but it's also increasingly thinking about soul music as the soundtrack of those changes, right? And one of the things that you really begin to see uh, in places like Memphis is an increasing attempt by studios, some of whom are still working with an interracial group of musicians, right? This is not a story about resegregation, uh, but they're also trying to really speak to um, a growing assertion and a growing belief that black music can and should be uh, a way not just to express broader desires or fears, but actually a way to kind of communicate what's going on in the movement. Uh, So the sound shifts uh, the iconography shifts um, the way in which um, the musicians kind of present themselves to the world shifts. But one of the things that gets really interesting is that these studios are banking a lot of their cultural capital on the fact that they are integrated and increasingly they promote themselves as being symbols of positive racial change, which of course they are, even though that's very simplified and can be romanticized, uh, they certainly are. So when black power happens, uh, they kind of need to reframe that a little bit. They don't need to to, to dismiss it, but they d- they demonstrate or they try to demonstrate the way that they are speaking to a, a moment of growing assertion among African Americans while also still reflecting that kind of integrated dream of the early movement, right? And that's a very simplified version of that uh, of that story. Um, and the Black Power Movement is such a remarkable, multifarious kind of thing that it's always difficult to try to sum up what Black Power means even in this specific context. But The politics get more assertive. African-American musicians use the opportunities of black power to assert a greater uh, degree of control. Uh, Over the music that they're making, whether it means uh, demanding that they be treated equitably within the studio uh, to demanding more monetary control, right? More ownership, uh, literally, you know, financial ownership uh, over the sound. Uh, This is a a moment where particularly uh, at Stax in Memphis... Uh, A new label president, Al Bell, comes in who wants Stax to be not just a soundtrack of the Black Power movement, uh, but also a demonstration of how the Black Power movement should work from the ground up. So all of a sudden there are new uh, African-American front office uh, executives at Stax, and that shifts the racial dynamics of that studio. And on a national level, soul music becomes... Uh, thought about as a barometer for where the civil rights and black power movements are uh and that has some very interesting effects when it turn you know when you look at these uh, integrated studios or when you look at um the way in which black and white musicians are working together because even the most kind of supportive white musicians don't necessarily. Uh, they're not necessarily fully supportive of African-Americans taking full control. And you actually have a lot of white musicians who feel marginalized and feel left out. And while previous versions of the story have sort of bemoaned the fact uh, that the white musicians felt left out, what I try to do is demonstrate that while there were moments of conflict and while there were moments of, of, you know, the break up, breakup up of these early interracial uh, musical organizations, the assertions of black power are really important for giving black musicians an opportunity to uh, to demand things that they'd always wanted and to demand things that they deserved.
0: Those are all important points, because when you have so much going on, um, in the recording studios and, and then you have, I thought one of the most fascinating figures of your whole book, because, you know, you chronicle stories and you intermingle Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin, Willie Nelson. And, and you already talked about Dan Penn and others. Um, But Swamp Dog, Swamp Dog to me was, you know, I I actually went on um, title and I, I looked up some of Swamp Dog because I'm like, good grief. This is, this is some good stuff. So, so, would you be able to 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 talk to, to to the to the to the viewers, um, about a bit about the the importance of Swamp Dog to your story, especially in the, in the latter portion?
1: Yeah, you know uh, that's great. First of all, I love that you're now listening to some Swamp Dog because if the if the book has any real goal, it's to it's to get folks like Swamp Dog listened to by as many people as possible. So Swamp Dog, in a sense, becomes he's one of the I mean, he's he's, a, he's an important figure in the book, but he really, in terms of the story he represents, he's kind of one of the central figures, I think, for me in terms of these, these complexities. His name is Jerry Williams, was his given name, uh, recorded under the name Swamp Dog. He still records uh, and tours under the name Swamp Dog. And he is a singer, songwriter, uh, piano player, producer, African-American guy, Grows up in Virginia listening to country music, you know, that very kind of uh, common story, uh, and ends up working as an R&B performer and, and songwriter and producer. Um, but increasingly, as the 1960s go on, uh, he adopts this persona of Swamp Dog, which is very much in line with kind of a Funkadelic or Sly in the Family Stone kind of vibe. He makes these records that are really funky and weird. Uh, they're very political. They're very Black Power oriented. They're very anti-war. Um And within all this, though, he is recording on these albums uh, country music. He's covering country songs. He's incorporating country music influences into these records. He actually told me when I interviewed him that one of the reasons why his records have so many horns on them, so many horn parts, is that if they didn't have horn parts on them, uh, they would have just sounded country. And he knew that that wasn't going to work because black folks weren't given the opportunity to be country stars. So, all of the records he makes, all the production that he does for other African American artists, they have this incredible country influence while also being, you know, deeply funky and deeply political. At the same time as all of this is happening, though, he actually co writes a number one country hit. The song Don't Take Her, She's All I've Got, which is recorded by Johnny Paycheck and becomes a huge, 1971 I think is the year, a huge hit, wins awards and all this stuff. So at the very moment that Swap Dog is putting records out where he is condemning racial hypocrisy, where he's condemning the Vietnam War, uh, he's also having behind-the-scenes success uh, with country music. And while, again, that is in one way a demonstration of how music challenges our notion of racial difference, he also, I think, feels very, very uh, uh, frustrated with the fact that not only was he never uh, given the opportunity to record country music or to be taken seriously as a Nashville country artist because of his race, But also, you know, he talks about the fact that when She's All I've Got won a big award in Nashville, uh, somehow he wasn't sent an invitation to come to the awards ceremony. Uh, which, you know, who knows why that was, but for him, that was symbolic of what he felt is his larger marginalization. So he kind of occupies this middle space where musically he's demonstrating the linkage between country and soul about as effectively as anybody in the whole story. But he's also very aware of the way that his work is nonetheless bound by these very firm, tenacious racial categories. So I love, I love his stuff. And I I hope that as many people listen to him as possible and just in the way that he articulates this understanding of music as a space of racial breakdown, but also as a space of another space for African-Americans to try to negotiate a limited opportunity, right? Another place where, another place where even when it shouldn't because of the sound being so hybridized, uh, he and other black musicians have to go through their day-to-day work and their day-to-day lives and their broader careers being fully aware that they are unlikely to receive the same notoriety or the same opportunities. You know, he talks about and, and I talk about in the book how the 1970s are this moment where white musicians who are incorporating soul music into their sounds are becoming even more celebrated, even more successful. It becomes a way that pop and country artists can actually get greater success. But the opposite isn't true for artists like Swamp Dog, right? It's not like Black artists are able to become kind of country stars or do that. So he uh, he's great. His records are great. I'm so glad that he's still out there touring. And he's having, I think, a moment of, of prominence again. I know uh bon Iver said, uh, Justin Vernon and Bodie Bear have uh have worked with him quite a bit and he's opened for, for Boney Bear. So I'm really thrilled because he is a brilliant, weird and wonderful artist who uh whose records are, are really great. And and yeah, go check out Swamp Dog.
0: And hey, hey, I'm glad that you know the new books in African American Studies we can bring this this rena- this renaissance of of swamp dog, yeah that, that that's uh the the swamp dog renaissance and and so I I I, I love it I love it um and you know it's another connection that I made too was how in our contemporary moment a lot of times people look at President Obama's election and then Donald Trump's election at the at the at the end of his presidency as like a as Van Jones from CNN would call it a white lash right but but if you think about it a lot of the 1970s country music that does come out that is popularized you know you know yeah you do have outlaw country that does come out which which is an interesting hybrid um that you that you bring up but but you do have the hardening i guess of 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 if if the 1960s was brought about malleability then the 1970s and the 1980s especially was a racial hard hardening, right? Even with the rise of Charlie Pride, obviously it's not until Darius Rucker, who's already right, he wasn't a organic uh a country artist, right? He he was Hootie, right? Oh Stop it. oh that's Hootie. Oh that's Hootie who who's playing all right, right? And so he's not I don't even consider him in the same vein. Not that he's not a country artist, but that he did not come up through the ranks as a country artist for him to hit his his pinnacle, right? He was already, you know, big time uh, going back into the late 80s, early 90s with Hootie and the Blowfish. And so obviously there's some time that goes through that. Um and so would you be able to speak to kind of like that, that 1970s kind of kind of the 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 I guess in this case the 1970s version of a white lash and the hardening of the racial lines? Um, when it came to, to, to music and kind of how, uh, other musicians took up the mantle of a different kind of
1: politics in their music. Yeah. You know, the, um, the seventies is such an interesting moment for country music. Um, in part because of that, that political hardening that you're talking about, right? Country music has always had very interesting and complicated politics, uh, often more complicated than, than than necessarily seems from the outside. Um, but certainly the 70s is a moment where you begin to have um, very kind of openly white backlash kind of songs and white backlash-related artists. Um, you also have, by the end of the 70s, this very complicated thing where, you know, you have artists who are waving the Confederate flag, who may say that they're not representing, you know, any kind of racial reaction, but whose iconography and whose symbolism is going to look to a lot of black folks like reaction, right? So you have that hardening, you do have that, that kind of, um, that look back to a mythical white past, right? Which is always a part of, uh, that, that kind of white reaction certainly was a part of it Couple years ago, with with the election of Donald Trump, I mean, the very idea of "Make America Great Again," right, is a historical argument. Um, but what's interesting about that too is that the '70s is also a moment where everybody in country music, in one form or another, is incorporating black musical influences. Um, it is, in some ways, the most racially hybridized sound that country had ever had, right? Or at least it was as, even as country becomes known as this sound of whiteness or the sound of white politics, you've got everything from old time blues and jazz to soul music and then ultimately even disco being incorporated by country artists. Now, in one way, this is not that big a deal because cultural appropriation has always been a thing that white folks have involved with right but what i do think is really interesting about it is that the incorporation of black musical influences remains this kind of controversial thing among country fans that you know Is the incorporate, you know, our people, country artists doing disco music becomes really controversial because wait a minute, like, is this, you know, is this country roots or is this trying to be something else? Is this trying to be something dangerous that we don't like? Disco being associated so much with black folks and, and with queer folks and with women, right? And being associated with, with communities that, uh, at least in the most simplified version are often considered outside of that boundary, so the 70s becomes a really interesting moment of hardening. Uh, and it also, but what become what is consistent throughout that period is that country music continues to incorporate or perhaps appropriate Black influences. On the other side of it, soul music is increasingly thought of at, over the course of the decade as the sound of the past, right? One of the things that I try to talk about in the book is that part of that racial hardening or part of that musical hardening of the seventies is that what had started the decade as being the most revolutionary pop music sound, right? Staple singers, Aretha Franklin. uh, There you go. Right? Like all of this music that was positioned as the sound of the future by the end of the seventies, you have, you have a lot of folks saying, Oh, this is the sound of the past. And what it, what that means is that as country music incorporates black music as a sound of how it's progressing and how it's moving forward, Southern soul music gets rewritten as this kind of nostalgic view of the past. And I think that has a really important uh, impact because the black musical South gets rewritten as uh, the site of, of tradition uh, as the site of influence, as opposed uh, opposed to the site of continuing innovation.
0: Both all great, great, great points. And, and, And it's why I'm glad that we had you on here today, uh, Doctor Hughes, because for the work that you did with this with this book, it's it's great because um, it's you know soul music and country music are two of the most important art forms of the 20th century, and they're they're ones that really when you give when you when you look at the history of them in the 1950s, and the late 1950s, 60s, and in the 70s and 80s, excuse me, what you see is that um when you have the second part of the title Making Race or Making Music and Making Race in the American South, it's really in the American South where a lot of things are are created, right? You know, all of this is exclusively in the deep south. And I think it gives us a better understanding of of where we've come from and where we're going, in the sense that southern music and southern culture as a whole right the southern region is an important region and to me hey as a southern i think it's the most important one but hey that's fine it's okay if not other everybody thinks that but you know i think it's okay because i think the south is pretty great um but also the music that comes out of there is important too um so i definitely appreciate you for the work that you've conducted for this and so with that new books in african-american studies listeners This is Adam McNeil here with Dr. Charles L. Hughes for the phenomenal interview for Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South. Until next time, over and out.